Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. As these trials wind down, we are bifurcating our coverage of them. On today's episode, we hear from our correspondent, Brittany Bookbinder, about closing arguments in the trial of Danny Masterson. That's all coming up right after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her look at the attorney's closing arguments to the jury in the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. As we covered in our last episode, Danny Masterson's defense team declined to call any witnesses and Danny Masterson decided not to testify. So when both sides rested on Monday, November 14th, Judge Almeida was poised to read the jury instructions. First, however, there was a change to the makeup of the jury. Juror 11 in seat 7, a Latinx man who appeared to be in his late 30s, tested positive for COVID the day before and indicated that he was symptomatic. Judge Almeida asked both sides to stipulate that the juror could be excused. Otherwise, the trial would be in a holding pattern for 5 to 10 days, notwithstanding the Thanksgiving break, until the juror tested negative. While she explained this, someone in the gallery, as if on cue, erupted into a coughing fit. The defense refused to stipulate. Over the defense's objection, Judge Almeida excused the juror. He was replaced at random by the alternate in seat 13, a white woman who appears to be in her 30s. Thus, on the eve of deliberations, the composition of the jury shifted to seven women and five men. With that, Judge Almeida read the jury instructions. In addition to the boilerplate instructions, Almeida explained what is meant by consent. She said that for there to be consent, a woman must act freely and voluntarily and know the nature of the act. She explained that the woman may change her mind during the act and has to communicate through words or acts. Alternatively, she explained, consent is not met if a reasonable person would understand that the woman is no longer consenting or if he continues through her objections. She explained that evidence that the two people dated does not constitute consent, nor does talk of wearing a condom. Since the charges in this case are forcible rape, Judge Almeida went on to explain that force refers to a sufficient level of force to overcome the woman's will. The woman must be actually or reasonably afraid, or actually and unreasonably afraid, but the man takes advantage. With that, the jury was dismissed. When they returned on Tuesday, November 15th, closing arguments began. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller gave the closing for the people. In contrast to the gentle, soft-spoken demeanor that was Mueller's trademark for most of the trial, the prosecution's closing was marked with passion and a righteous anger on behalf of the victims. 
Mueller first stated the charges in this case, three counts of forcible rape for Jane Doe's one, two, and three. He thanked the jury for their service, explaining that what they're doing is important. Quote, it's important to the three victims that you see up on the screen who were forcibly raped by this defendant sitting over here, a man who was controlling, and a man for whom no never meant no, end quote. The assertion that no never meant no to Masterson was a frequent refrain throughout the argument. In an uncharacteristically direct moment, Mueller pointed to Masterson, who, Mueller said, has been coming to court looking like a well-groomed, well-dressed gentleman. Mueller stated that Masterson had a far different persona to the victims in this case. Mueller referred to Masterson being an upstat, a term in Scientology meaning someone who is high status and provides for those under him. Using Scientology jargon was no accident. Throughout the argument, Mueller underscored how the victim's involvement with Scientology impacted their behavior during and after the alleged assaults. As Mueller laid out his point of view on Masterson, he spoke to the jury in the second person, presumably so that each of them, regardless of their gender, could empathize with the victims. He said that Masterson was the center of a large circle of friends, the one who'd host parties at his house, and quote, if you had a little too much to drink, he would invite you to spend the night, just to be safe. But if you were a young woman, much like these three victims were at the time, you were far from safe, because if you were incapacitated in his bed, he would rape you. If you were incapacitated somewhere else in his house, he would come and find you. And if you were at his home and not yet intoxicated, he would offer you the alcohol to get you there, and then he would rape you." End quote. Mueller ended this impassioned section by telling the jury that they have the power to hold this man accountable. Before getting into the specifics of the case, Mueller explained what consent means in a legal context. He explained that any amount of penetration can constitute intercourse, and that a person must act freely and voluntarily in order for there to be consent. Quote, Telling someone no is not acting freely and voluntarily. Telling someone to stop is not acting freely and voluntarily. Pushing someone off is not acting freely and voluntarily. That is not consent. End quote. Throughout his explanation, he referred back to the expert testimony of Dr. Mindy Mechanic in an apparent effort to link, in the jurors' minds, the legal definition of rape to the specific moments that the victims testified to on the stand. Mueller then eloquently laid out his case, showing how each piece of testimony that the jury heard, even the incidents of alleged assault that aren't charged in this case, are crucial to understanding the full picture. He started with Jane Doe 1, the friend of Masterson who went to his house to pick up a set of keys. He explained how her world was turned upside down in the aftermath of the first incident, which occurred in September of 2002, and how that had a direct impact on her actions after the April 2003 incident, which is the charge in this case. In detailing the April 2003 incident, he highlighted how Jane Doe One's testimony about being smothered with a pillow and being choked until she passed out while Masterson penetrated her constitutes forcible rape. In many instances, Mueller appeared to get ahead of a defense argument by offering an explanation for inconsistencies or seemingly problematic pieces of evidence. When it came to the bruising that Jane Doe One developed while on the family trip to Florida, Mueller said, quote, We wish we had some photos, but that was back in 2003, back when there were still negatives. We have the photos we have, and it does show, the best photo does show bruising on the hip, but we know from Rachel the bruising that she saw, end quote. When he talked about Jane Doe One's fear of being declared a suppressive person, the defense objected. The objection was overruled. Mueller made the point that the reason Jane Doe One signed an NDA and accepted a $400,000 payout was because the alternative, which was being declared a suppressive person and losing her friends, family, and employment, was unthinkable. Quote, that was her world. Everything she knew would go away. That was not much of a choice for her. End quote. 
Mueller then moved on to Jane Doe 3, Masterson's ex-girlfriend. He stated several times that the charged count is the November 2001 incident of forcible rape. But as he had with Jane Doe 1, he went back to the earlier incidents that Jane Doe 1 testified about and explained their significance. In the case of Jane Doe 3, the earlier 2001 incidents, including the Paris incident and the incident outside of the Standard Bar, where Masterson shouted inappropriate comments at an actress, were significant because they marked a sea change in their relationship. Mueller then detailed the November 2001 incident and explained how Jane Doe 3's recollection of the event, which included Masterson pinning her arms back and hitting her in the face, amounted to forcible rape. Again, seeming to anticipate a defense argument, Mueller honed in on the physical violence. Quote, there was a whole argument about whether it was a hit or a slap, doesn't matter, who cares, he hit her in the face, end quote. He then moved on to the December 2001 unconscious sodomy and addressed a defense argument head on. The defense has argued that while Jane Doe 3 disclosed the December incident to her husband, a rape hotline, and law enforcement, she failed to give a detailed count of the November incident prior to getting on the stand. In a powerful moment that was full of emotion, Mueller explained, quote, why? Because that's the one that stuck out in her mind. What about the November incident? What about that? That one didn't stick out in her mind because that was normal for her. This man, who I put all my trust in, he flips me over and has anal sex with me while I'm unconscious? That's a huge violation. It's a huge breach of trust. It made such an impact on her that she couldn't shake it for years. It's all she talked about because the rest was normal. The getting on top, no, 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 doing it anyway, and then finally going, okay, I give up, I let him, he overcame my will, so I let him. That was normal for her. Again, it's this processing. What she recognized as frequent and normal and often events, this December incident stood out as so different. And that's why you hear her talking about it. And that's why she brings it up all the time. That's my rape. But you know what? That November 2001 incident is a forcible rape. End quote. After the morning break, Mueller moved on to Jane Doe 2, the woman who described Masterson's verbal and physical treatment of her as predatory. As he went through her 2003 incident, he returned to his familiar refrain, quote, she shouted at him, no, I told you no sex. He completely disregarded that. Remember that with Mr. Masterson, no never means no. If I want it, it's gonna happen, end quote. Once more, Mueller anticipated a defense argument. Regarding why Jane Doe 2 stayed until 5 in the morning talking to Masterson following the alleged assault, he said, quote, You might question that a little bit, that behavior, but no, because Dr. Mechanic explained it very well, end quote. In reference to the phone call she made several days after the incident, he said, quote, She wanted confirmation. She wanted to know that she was wrong, that me, myself, and I am not the victim. These things are not black and white especially when you know the offender. It's different than a stranger. The process is different for everybody, but it's a process." End quote. Then he explained, rape is a very personal, deep, deep invasion of your body. If you think someone breaking into your home, into your car to take property, and it's an invasion, an unsettling feeling, imagine that to your body, your personal body. It's a huge, devastating invasion. And for some, it's more difficult than for others." End quote it would seem that Mueller was attempting to appeal to the juror's sense of empathy. Mueller then moved on to the allegations of Jane Doe 4. He explained, quote, These are uncharged acts, and the jury form will tell you how to handle these. But with Jane Doe 4, consider the evidence. And if you believe that by a preponderance of evidence, more likely than not, that these acts occurred, then along with the other evidence in this case, you would consider this in determining whether there's a propensity for Mr. Masterson to be committing these acts, end quote. After going through Jane Doe 4's two alleged incidents, which we covered in our last episode, he then addressed the jury directly. 
quote, I submit to you the evidence in this case proves that the defendant, Danny Masterson, is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt on each of these counts, the forcible rape of Jane Doe 1, 2, and 3. I'm confident that each of you will be able to reach guilty verdicts, end quote. We'll cover defense attorney Philip Cohen's closing argument and the prosecution's rebuttal after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. After a short break, defense attorney Philip Cohen gave his closing argument. His argument appeared to boil down to the assertion that the testimony of the Jane Doe's and their accompanying witnesses simply could not be trusted. He also took aim at the competency of both the investigators and the prosecutors in this case. Cohen started by accusing the prosecution of having less than honorable intentions. Quote, Mueller says he's out for justice, but he wants to win this case. They want to win this case so badly that they have ignored, right up until that closing, they have ignored the blatant, obvious, overwhelming contradictions, fabrications that each Jane Doe has given, plus the witnesses, end quote. Cohen then waxed philosophical. He said, quote, You all can look at this case. Actually, you can look at the whole criminal justice system in one of two ways, end quote. He then sat down on the witness stand and asked the judge if it was okay to do so. In an exasperated tone, Judge Olmedo said he could sit, but instructed him to confine his argument to this case. Cohen explained his point, which was essentially that just because a witness swears an oath, that doesn't mean you can take what they say at face value. The implication being that the victims in this case were not truthful in their testimony. He then gave an anecdote about working alongside a different Los Angeles deputy DA 20 years ago, who asked him how he could represent, quote, these people. The DA insisted that his view would change once Cohen had children. Cohen stated that his views did change, but not in the way that the DA expected. Now he's concerned for his sons. Quote, They're going to be sitting in a chair like that, and the government will put on a case, like this case was put on, and hide from, ignore, avoid the contradictions, the fabrications from a jury, and one of my boys is going to be sitting there, and I'm not there to help him out. End quote. Cohen then went through the jury instructions that he believes were the most important, namely that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty, and that in order to convict, the jury must have an abiding conviction of guilt. To illustrate his point, he displayed a pyramid diagram on an easel that was facing the jury and facing away from the press gallery that depicted different levels of certainty in the defendant's guilt. Cohen told the jury that they must not let bias, sympathy, prejudice, or public opinion influence their assessment. Regarding bias, Cohen said, quote, that's the reason Scientology has been mentioned 700 times during this trial, end quote. Judge Olmedo cut him off and admonished the jury, quote, ladies and gentlemen, that's not an evidence, end quote. She then instructed Cohen to please argue the evidence. Cohen then pointed to one section of testimony given by Mindy Mechanic, where she agreed that outside of her research and in real-life contexts, it's possible for victims to lie. In the minutes before lunch, Cohen briefly went through each victim and pointed out inconsistencies in the peripheral details of their statements. After lunch, Cohen returned to this point. He began, quote, Do you find the Jane Doe's credible? You don't know that what they said is true. You just know what they told you. End quote. He then went through each victim's testimony in granular detail, pointing out what he believed were important inconsistencies. 
He questioned why Jane Doe 1 would go back to Masterson's house in 2003, given that the 2002 incident blew up her world. Regarding the phone call that Jane Doe 1 placed to Masterson while she was in Florida, Cohen stated, quote, she lied, she made it up, end quote. Regarding the gun that Masterson allegedly pointed at Jane Doe 1, Cohen argued, quote, the government then pits the competency of the LAPD against the credibility of Jane Doe 1. They got it wrong, end quote. Cohen then moved on to Jane Doe 2 and predictably questioned why she stayed at Masterson's house until the early hours of the morning, talking with him after the incident. He then stated that Jane Doe 2 told Detective Reyes, quote, I never feared that he would hurt or hit me, end quote. Cohen said, quote, penetration in and of itself is not force, end quote. He then moved on to Jane Doe 3's allegation. When he moved on to Jane Doe 3's allegation, he brought up Detective Vargas's testimony and the surprising moment when he indicated that he believed the charge was the December unconscious sodomy incident. Cohen then implored the jury to focus on the details when assessing the credibility of the witness. He said, quote, The gist is, three women said they were raped. I get the gist. Gist doesn't convict. What convicts is consistency, logic, reason. Does it make sense by proof beyond reasonable doubt? End quote. Cohen then read off a list of questions that he would like the jury to keep in mind regarding the details of this case. First, why choose Jane Doe 1 over Schlegel? Officer Schlegel was the LAPD officer who Jane Doe 1 initially spoke to in 2004. She claims she told Officer Schlegel that Masterson brandished a gun and that Schlegel neglected to include that in his report. Next, he asked, why didn't Jane Doe 3 tell anybody that she slept with Danny post-breakup? As we learned on direct examination, Jane Doe 3 and Masterson had two consensual encounters after they broke up. The second time, Masterson took a picture of Jane Doe 3 while she was naked, which she didn't consent to. She asked him to delete it, and he refused. Jane Doe 3 claimed that after that, she was done. Then Cohen asked, Why didn't Jane Doe tell us that she had a fling and a date with Danny? Why did we have to hear that from Rachel? Rachel Smith testified that she originally understood that Jane Doe 2 and Masterson had a fling, and only later, after she broke with the Church of Scientology, understood the incident to be rape. She never testified, however, that Jane Doe 2 told her they had a fling. Finally, Cohen asked, Why did Jane Doe 4 lie about sending that text? Here, Cohen is referring to the direct message she sent to Chris Masterson, Danny's brother, in which she stated that she saw a negative article about Danny Masterson and wanted to send her support. On redirect, Jane Doe 4 had explained that she sent the message to keep herself safe from intimidation, lest Masterson think she was involved with the case. Cohen put forth a different explanation, which was that in 2017, when the message was sent, Jane Doe 4 had never told anyone she was raped. Thus, Cohen argued, it's possible that the assault never took place. With that, Cohen concluded his argument. Mueller then delivered a brief rebuttal argument. He began by writing the word reasonable on the whiteboard. He then elaborated on another of the jury instructions. Mueller said, quote, You're going to see as you go through the jury instructions throughout. It's also in our burden of proof, beyond a reasonable doubt. Why is it there? Because when you review the evidence, you are to consider evidence that is reasonable and only evidence that is reasonable. And if there is something that you find to be unreasonable, you must reject it, end quote. The implication appeared to be that Cohen's alternate explanation of events is unreasonable. Mueller then addressed the argument that the victim's testimony was, at times, inconsistent. He referred back to the expert testimony of Mindy Mechanic, stating, quote, You know when you see consistencies is when someone has scripted something. Where you have inconsistencies is when you have a sexual assault victim, someone who's just gone through a horrible trauma to their body, they're having to be called into law enforcement for the very first time likely, and they're having to reach inside themselves, and they're having to pull out that pain and that trauma that they've buried inside themselves for probably some time, multiple times, to multiple investigators." End quote. 
Mueller explained once more that in this case, Scientology is unavoidable. He stated that Scientology played a role in three major ways. The victim's fear of going to law enforcement, the fact that they were told by church officials not to use the word rape, and their fear of being declared a suppressive person. Mueller then addressed Cohen's assertion that the victims have lied. Quote, why would there be any reason why any of these victims would come up here and lie? Better yet, if they were, if they came together and decided that they were gonna share stories, then why all the inconsistencies as Cohen is claiming? Wouldn't they have come up with a better statement, better facts to support their case? End quote. Lastly, Mueller addressed the issue of forcible rape. He argued, quote, if the defendant actually and reasonably believed that the person was consenting, he's not guilty. But see, there it is again, actually and reasonably. There is no way that anybody is going to reasonably believe that Jane Doe 3 was consensually having sex as she's telling him over and over again, no, get off of me, as she's moving, trying to get off of his body weight as she pulls his hair. That's not reasonable belief that Jane Doe 3 is consenting. Jane Doe 2, as he has her in the bed, as she's told him over and over again, no sex, and he flips her over, and he flips her, and he flips her, and he flips her, like a rag doll, to the point where she vomits in her mouth. There is no reasonable belief that she's consenting to that. Jane Doe 1, she's so nauseous that she vomits all over her hair to the point where he says you're so disgusting and he takes her into the bed and has his way with her, pillow, choking, unconscious. No reasonable person would believe that Jane Doe 1 is consenting. Absolutely not, end quote. Mueller then concluded his argument. With 30 minutes remaining in the day, the 12 jurors, including seven women and five men, began deliberations. As of this recording, the jury has deliberated for nearly three days. At the end of the day on Friday, they indicated that they have not been able to reach a unanimous verdict on any of the three counts. They will return and continue deliberations on Monday, November 28th. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of her trial report is jury duty correspondent Brittany Bookbinder. Brittany, welcome back. Hi, Carrie. Great to be here. The prosecution has charged Danny Masterson with three counts of forcible rape. And as I understand it, there are two types of rape that can be charged, forcible rape and rape by intoxication. Can you clarify the difference? Yes. So forcible rape refers to rape by force or by fear. Did the defendant use sufficient force to overcome the woman's will? And was she reasonably afraid? And if she was unreasonably afraid, did the man take advantage of the situation or did he continue through her objections? So the charges in this case on all three counts are forcible rape and not rape by intoxication. And what is the significance of the three forcible rape charges to the sustainability of those charges under California's statute of limitations? So normally, the statute of limitations would bar the prosecution from charging Masterson for rape because too much time had passed since the incidents. But because they're charging forcible rape on three counts, it falls under California's one-strike law. And so the statute of limitations does not apply. And as I understand it, the prosecution has to secure convictions on at least two of the three forcible rape charges in order for those charges to be sustained under the statute of limitations. Is that true? And if so, why? That's correct. That's my understanding. A forcible rape qualifies as a charge under California's one-strike law if it has the aggravating factor that it's committed by someone who has a prior conviction of one or more counts of the same offense. Now, what the prosecution has succeeded in persuading the court is that if Danny Masterson gets convicted on two or more counts, then that qualifies as prior convictions of one or more forcible rapes. If he only were to get convicted on one count, that would no longer apply. 
And as it happens, you told us that the jury came back on Friday afternoon and declared that they were deadlocked. Judge Almeida indicated that they had not been deliberating long enough to be declared deadlocked and ordered them to come back a week from Monday after Thanksgiving to continue their deliberations. What do you think the significance of the jury declaring that they were deadlocked on all three counts is in this trial? Well, I think it's significant to the extent that I was not expecting that to be the case. I thought, if anything, they would be clear on at least two of the counts. And there was one count that was maybe up in the air, whether they were going to be able to reach a unanimous verdict or not. The fact that they are deadlocked on all three indicates that there's a lot more confusion, a lot more variation in opinion. Now, the judge has not told anybody the split. It could be 6-6. It could be, you know, one hold out in either direction. Unfortunately, we don't know much at this time, but it sounds like after some amount of time, once the jury comes back, the prosecution and defense may ask the jury some questions to see if there's anything that they can clarify. And if not, it might end up being a hung jury. Wow. Well, Brittany, thanks again for all your work on this. And we look forward to having you back in a couple of episodes for the first part of your conversation with blogger Tony Ortega, who has been covering this trial for his website, podcast, and newsletter, The Underground Bunker. Really looking forward to that. Thanks, Carrie. I'm looking forward to sharing that interview with you. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear from Molly Miller and a special guest about the testimonies of the final prosecution witnesses in the Los Angeles sexual assault trial of Harvey Weinstein. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Today's episode was reported and written by Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.